Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we're joined by the maker and the merchant, Fergus Elias and Lee Isaacs. As head winemaker at Hush Heath Estate in the UK, Fergus is one of the youngest head winemakers on the planet. No surprise, given that he's been working in English sparkling wine since he was big enough to walk. Lee, best known by many of us for his zany wedding guitar riffs, has spent over 20 years working in wine as a WSET educator, merchant, presenter, and brand ambassador. Today, we talk about Twitter friends and podcast, joy and delight, and deep knowledge and expertise. Let's get into it. Good morning, gentlemen, Fergus and Lee. I'm so excited to have you here today. Good morning. Oh, thank, thank you. So thank much you for having me. Um... <laughs> you see, Three Fergus and I. Three people on a podcast is hard. We're all going to talk over each other and it's completely okay. So just go for it. Fergus and I finish each other's sentences. <laughs> Well, please go right ahead. I promise not to chop and change it so that doesn't happen. So, okay, we're, we're having a little bit of a different style of podcast today. Um, and, and one reason for that is that the two of you are podcasters as of just a few weeks ago, but you also have a lot of presenting. You've got a lot of communication background. Um, we were just talking before we officially hit record that this is going to, God knows what tangents we're going to go off in. So before, before we actually let our freak flags fly, uh, let's do all of the appropriate posturing for a moment so that people are like, oh, maybe I really should listen to what they have to say. Um, I'm going to go in the order that you present across my screen. Fergus. Hello. Lovely, Fergus. Um, Jamie Good has referred to you as one of the most accomplished winemakers in English wine today, and you are one of the youngest head winemakers on the planet. <laughs> well, that, these are both incredibly generous statements, um, um, but uh, I, I, I am a head winemaker, and and and. I'm, yeah. And you are young, and, so and apparently I'm he's not, right. Not especially old, I suppose. Um, no, I certainly <laughs> feel it, feel it now, halfway through harvest. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, tell us what you do in your day to day life when you're not being irreverent with Lee. Uh, so, I am head winemaker at Balfour Winery, which is a sort of medium sized winery based in Kent, uh, in England. So, we make. Uh, traditional method sparkling wines and some still wines. We're about 66, 33 sparkling still. Um, and we make probably uh, just under half a million bottles a year. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my, my, de- my bread and butter is, 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 is making those wines and talk about those wines. And, and um, yeah, I ran into Lee uh, probably during lockdown. I think it was one of those ones, one of those, meetings via the internet um mm. and yeah we've been friends for a long time and then um well not a long time but a few years now covid feels like a long time uh and COVID has been a lifetime <laughs> it has hasn't it um and then yeah perhaps not that long ago we decided that we quite liked talking and we had moderately large egos and thought that we'd just do a podcast and you know, we you have, both had microphones. Yeah, you're well, like screw it, we're in. Yeah, absolutely. That that was basically how it started, and we're now two episodes into the Maker and the Merchant, which I regularly get the name wrong for. 
Um, and yeah, it's really good fun. Um, but yeah, that's 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 sort of that's sort of me. Um, yeah. So a, a quick thing, Fergus. Um, not that we want to, you know, kind of ride on anybody's coattails, but you grew up in wine. For you know one for one pretty big reason, um, and that is your father. You know, has a little bit of knowledge about making wine, right? Yeah, he's made a few. Uh, he's made a few bottles. Uh, <laughs> my father was is a consultant winemaker. He was the head winemaker at Chapel Down, and which is England's biggest winery. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so he. I grew up. I literally grew up in the house next to chapel down um so that was that was a lot of fun uh, it meant i spent every sort of holiday you can imagine working in some description in in either a winery a vineyard or a, or the shop once i was once i was 18 um which is great fun um but it did completely put me off a career in wine for a year or so because <laughs> really so yeah. you, you had to come like full circle on this. I, I really did. I sort of, I, I decided that I, just, I spent so many hours pruning in miserable conditions and so many days just standing on a disgorging line that I decided that I really wanted to do something else. Um, so I studied ancient history at Liverpool University and my plan was either become a pilot and when that was always that was always a bit of a pipe dream but if it if it, if it didn't work out the plan was to become a lawyer um and god then, forbid yeah i know burn all the lawyers um <laughs> but they do make nice money um so i sort of thought i'd do that but then i didn't i got offered a job in wine and I finished my degree and took 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 a position here as as a seller hand at, at Balfour, and then um, over and the now last- you have now you have Jamie saying you know these lovely hyperbolic things about you. So clearly it, it was a good choice, but more importantly, you get to spend your days with Lee and his guitar and his very large wine brain that I'm not certain that people who first encounter Lee on social media might realize how deep the wine knowledge goes. So nice segue there. I'm going to pass to Lee and just say, you know, before we get to the, the stand-up comedy and the guitars, tell us a little bit about the 20 plus years that you have spent in wine. Well, that is, far too kind and generous. I, I was worried how you were going to follow up from Fergus with, you know, you've got a quote from Jamie Good. He's the most accomplished winemaker and go, how can I possibly introduce this this idiot that hangs around with Fergus? Oh, I have the <laughs> quote for you too, but it's not about you. Don't worry, we'll get Oh, that's to good. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think probably legally you wouldn't be allowed to use those quotes until the course is, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> it's finalised in the course. Now, I... Um, my quote, I mean... <laughs> yeah, yes, we can't have your quote at all. Um, no. I, uh, yes, I've been, I've been around wine from a very young age. I had quite a continental style upbringing, at, at which point I'm always at pains to, to try and explain who I really am. So who, who I really am is a northern working class country boy so you know I, we, we grew up or I, I grew up drinking that's probably a complete statement actually I grew up drinking I, I was kind of exposed to wine from about the age of five so my my parents would give me a, a very small serve of usually white wine allow me to like literally touch the lips and then that would have been topped up with water or lemonade and as I got older those ratios changed and but the, the wines we drank were very ordinary everyday wines, so they were the I suppose that the Casadaro del Diablos and the Yellow Tails of, of the day, generally, although occasionally sure. we would drink, you know, a, a, a very extreme purchase would have been maybe a bottle of vintage, say, Verve Clicquot or, or maybe Moet. So, you know, not not a, an especially hard to find champagne one that was prevalent, but, you know, we drank sort of fairly everyday stuff. But anyway, I digress. I, I just became really interested in wine. I thought it was fascinating. And I was 13 in a hotel in London with my mum and she ordered a glass of house red. I asked if I could taste it. She said, yes. And I was a really pretentious little shit. Um, I still am. And I did all the swirling and 
you know, all the noise making and slurping and all of this. And my mother was dying of shame in the corner of the hotel going, what have I introduced to the world? But I, I sort of tasted this wine and I said, I think this is an Australian Shiraz. And it was, you know, my mother said, you're 13, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. But it was an Australian Shiraz. Did you Shiraz. make that up? Like, did you pull that out of your ass or did you really think that it tasted like an Australian Shiraz? So that's a, a really good question. I put that down to the, the, the wine that we drank the most of at home was Australian Shiraz. So we spent quite mm. a bit of time in Australia. We had family out there. That was the wine that my, my father was the wine drinker of, of my two parents. My mother drank wine, but it was really sort of, you know, my father was the one going out and buying it and, and really enjoying mm. it. And, you know, he would talk about it. He, he was the kind of wine drinker that would come into a wine shop today and say, I know Chateau Neuf de Pape is good, but I don't know anything else. And you go, isn't that great? that you've got, you don't really know why this thing is supposed to be good, but you know it is, and, and ergo, there's some kind of connection with the wine. That's that's wonderful. But I, I think what I was doing in this instance in the hotel was I was recognising what we drank at home. So I, I always talk about, you know, when you see when you see really good blind tasters who can pick up a glass and tell you what it is, it's because they know those wines very, very well. It's I, I think good blind tasters can pick up a glass of wine and get it to this is a Malbec from Argentina or it's a claret right. that's about 10 years old. But to really nail it, I think it's because you, you have such a relationship and commonality with that wine that you it, it's easier to recognise. But this, so this I suppose, planted a seed, and it's only now I realise it. This, Kierkegaard wrote that life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards. Um, whereas I've, I've insisted on attempting to live my life backwards because I have no hopes, goals, dreams, desires, or talent. Um, but it, it's only now that I realise, I look back and go, that's what really set me off on my career. I was 13 years old, blind tasting a wine and realising that using the senses that the vast majority of us have, you know, our sight, our sense of smell and our sense of touch, I can identify something really specific, not just this is red wine, it's this great variety from this part. And that absolutely fascinated me. So fast forward, you know, five years, I was 18, accepted to university. I was taking a year out and I got a job in Odd Bins, which for, you know, for listeners not from the UK, at, at the time, that was the place in the UK where you went to buy wine if you weren't going to a supermarket or you weren't buying from a very high end, you know, independent retailer. And... Uh, funnily enough that, you know, they were the biggest thing in the UK wine scene at the time I joined and not long after they went bust. And I can't help but think those two things must be connected in some way. But I, I, I got this job at Odd Bins. You know, I was sort of full time, just basically, you know, seller rat, you know, running around the shop and stacking shelves. But I, I'd started my WSETs. But three months into the job, I thought this is this is what I want to do. And I've been in wine ever since. And that was just over 20 years ago. Um, wow. You know, obviously, I wasn't grey when I started. Uh, I looked a lot younger, and I actually had more money when I started in well, the wine industry that I have now. Relative to wine, right? A absolutely. We, we That's don't, not an uncommon story. We we don't do this for the money or the hours, do we? Let, let's let, let's be honest. That's the it, it's something so much more than that. Um, so I I can live with that. I mean, my bank manager can't. He's still absolutely furious with me, but um, I can live with that. You know, and, and then just because you really wanted to lean into that um, profit trajectory, the two of you go off and you start a podcast. Well, yeah. Which, we, um, yeah. I think and, Fergus and was I, the one. I, I, Fergus said, you know, we need to make loads of money. Let's do a podcast. It's like, well, that's it. Mm. We'll, we'll be millionaires this time next week. Perfect. I know. Um, I actually saw a funny meme this week that is if, four young guys are in a room talking about current events without a microphone. Is it even a podcast? <laughs> um, and, and, and the thing though, now kind of coming forward to where you guys are and what those of us who, who know you through the internet um, know about you is that you're fairly irreverent. I, I think that that would be safe to say. And here's actually my quote, Lee, that I have for you. There was an article recently in a substack called The Sociology of Business, where what they say is serious brands are dead brands. Self-seriousness is not just dearth of creativity, but also a losing strategic proposition. And I know, you know, I know that I have been saying this for a while, but I, I know that marketers like myself for a long time have been saying in wine, why are we so unjoyful? 
Why is our marketing so, so serious? What is it about what we're producing and how we think of ourselves that prevents us from being humorous, joyful, delight, self-deprecating, whatever it might be? And and we even funnily enough, we know that we love this because if you watch anyone from Monty Python through to sort of Ryan Reynolds today, you know, the, the goofball um, self-effacing humor, it lands really well with the audience. So I'm going to start with Fergus and just say, Fergus, like given your life in the wine industry, what do you think it is about what we do and who we are that makes it so hard for us to publicly find humor or take the piss out of out of our industry yeah i don't yeah i i couldn't agree with you more it's 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 a bizarre thing with 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 wine it's we've got this real why so serious edge to everything we do and and it's 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 especially prevalent in comms you know everything has to be grown up everything has to be serious and and it's always been something that i've never really understood because well it's that's not who I am as a person, I am certainly not grown up, and I certainly don't take myself seriously enough. And this is why I, you know, haven't got any money. Um, but you know, it's you're not helping our marketing cause here. No, really <laughs> but you know, it's, wine shouldn't be, for, for from my perspective, and from I, I mean, I look at it through the sort of prism of English wine, and you know, we wine shouldn't be serious. You know, wine should be fun and. It should be as accessible as possible. I mean, my my wine isn't. I know full well that my my wine isn't cheap, and I'm I'm at, most of my wines are at the cheaper end of the English wine scale. But so you know, accessibility issues are there. But you know, it shouldn't. We shouldn't all take ourselves as seriously as sometimes we do. And I don't. I've never really understood why. I, I think I think there's an element of it being a price thing. You know, oh well, you know, we're a premium brand, so therefore we can't have a sense of humour. Um, I think that's there's an element of that. Um, I'm not saying by any means alcohol lack a sense of humour. Of course, we're hilarious. Um, to, to jump in on that really quickly, Fergus, do you think that that is actually an element of age, maybe more than it is money? Because I, I'm thinking about, and God, they're terrible. I'm thinking about Balenciaga, you know, and and Givenchy, and all of the high end fashion brands, you know, Anya Hindmarch, Hindmarch. I never get her name right. Um, where they, you know, they're just silly in in many cases, and they're directed now to a much younger audience. Do you think that this is just part of the cycle of aging and understanding who we are and what we grew up with, and then that we do have younger younger drinkers? Uh, I, maybe, but if if that if that's the if the theory is, our uh, the people who are buying our product are, are older. Therefore, we should be not using, you know, we should we should be less humorous. It do- doesn't make sense. You know, they've grown up with slapstick comedy and, they, you know, the goons and people like that were were around when, when well, long before I was born. And that, you know, these are that's what they've grown up around. So I, mm-hmm. I think a bit of humor is it, it goes a long way. And I think that speaks to pretty much every generation, and especially, especially, um, yeah, the more puerile and and entertaining side of it. <laughs> right, right. So, so Lee, you have a background not only as a presenter, but very specifically in stand up, along with all of the big the big wine brain. At what point did your brain or your your presentation, your thoughts around wine, shift from maybe a more traditional approach to? the humor and the delight or were you always completely goofball that's a, a really good question and, and something i have to give a second thought to it, it's probably about somewhere between 12 and 15 years ago so I, I think one of the things about you know you mentioned ferguson and and i being irreverent fergus is a is irreverent because he's very very clever and he's he's able to kind of figure out figure out an angle very quickly as to how he can pick something and be irreverent about it. It's very clever. I'm irreverent because I'm the exact opposite. I'm not very clever. So I, I can't like just... I can't dig dig into it like that. I, I and I just happen to do it. But in terms of I suppose where that came from, I've I've always been my interest in comedy is very similar to my interest in wine in that it's 
my interest in wine isn't inherently about, oh, this tastes of strawberries. It's the acidity's here and the sugar's there. Why is that? What's that telling me? My interest in comedy is, you know, jokes have a, a very distinct rhythm, you know, punchline. Because it's not the content, it's how it's delivered that makes it. It's the kind of the mechanics behind it. And I think the moment, not that the penny dropped for me, that's overstating perhaps. I was at a tasting, <clears throat> excuse me, I was at a tasting with a, with a master of wine uh, who I hugely respect and is incredibly knowledgeable about their specific area. I mean, this, this MW knows more about this area that probably than any, th- that's the MW that all the other MWs go to to talk about this area. You know, and, everybody is going to sit here and be like, oh, which MW was it? I'm going to listen. I'm going to try to figure it out. Absolutely. Leave not your thoughts say, in the comments. I'm go. not going to tell you who it is because uh, I can't afford the legal fees. But, um, you know, I, this is in, in seriousness, an MW I greatly respect, has tremendous knowledge and that I, I worked with in a sort of buyer-seller capacity and thoroughly enjoyed the time that I, I spent with them. But I saw this MW give a presentation on their subject area to about 20 people. I was in the audience and it was dreadful. And the first thing that was apparent was that this particular individual doesn't really enjoy talking to groups of people. It's, it's not their skill set, but primarily it's not the thing they really enjoy. They enjoy maybe communicating one-to-one or they enjoy communicating through another medium, maybe, you know, a written medium, for example. And I came away from this tasting going, you, 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 you know, you know everything about this subject. It's a fascinating subject. It's a fascinating region. And actually, I thought that was a really dull presentation, partly mm. because I, I'm picking up that you weren't comfortable in that environment. And I think this individual, someone else from their organisation was supposed to do it, but was ill or something like that. And I'm, I'm by no means, this sounds like I'm being critical of the individual, and, and, and that is absolutely not my intention. But I came out of that and went, oh, that was really dull. And then somehow I just started to think, well, why don't I, when I'm hosting, why don't I treat it as if it's a stand-up event about wine, rather than I'm talking about wine, I'll try and drop in a few jokes. Why don't I approach this as, uh, when you do stand-up, not that I do it to, to any level of quality at all, but in, in my mind, you the, the great stand-ups, uh, who are, I sound like I'm equating myself to them. I'm absolutely not. <laughs> I'm certainly not. Okay, but, Steve Martin, come on, let's go. Yeah, I'll get my banjo out in a minute. Um, you, you you take on a character, right? I think we all know that. The comedian that you see on the stage, whoever it is, that that's not really the individual. There will be aspects of that individual coming through. But, for example, when I, when I do my tasting, I adopt a character and I, take, I, I try to think about something and, and go, if I was really that character, what would he say about it so the the obvious example anybody who has seen me or heard me do a tasting will be aware of this i have i have a thing about rosé i don't like rosé it's awful you shouldn't drink it and if you like drinking rosé you're a bad person now i don't inherently actually well coincidentally i do actually believe that but the character that i'm playing upon stage talking about wine does and what i realized about that was it it pushed the crowd I think when you're doing a wine tasting, it's easy to turn it into a lecture and wine shouldn't be a lecture unless you're actually studying the diploma or to become an MW or quartermaster sommeliers. You know, unless you're studying it very hard, this shouldn't be a lecture. People drink this stuff for fun. So I thought in doing that, I I can achieve two things. I can push the crowd to stand up for themselves. No, I'm not. Hang on a minute. I like rosé. That's valid. I'm not having this bloke who can't dress himself and combs his hair with a spoon tell me it's not acceptable. But also I can break down the image that many people have of wine or a wine merchant, which is rather arrogant, quite conceited, self-absorbed, all things that I actually am, admittedly. Self-absorbed. Red pants, you know. That's it, red pants, bow tie. And and sort of by the end of this talking about wine, what I've done is hopefully – communicate quite a lot of wine information that might be useful to the audience and, and normally I'm presenting to you know straight up consumers uh, of, of the people who fund our industry right but the other thing I can do is, is slowly erode my own position that I've taken so the, for the rosé thing I get to the end of the presentation and you know usually I try and do it as some form of, of quiz if it's a you know an, an entertaining evening but either way I get to the end of this narrative and go do you know that my most prized bottle of wine in my own collection is a bottle of rosé which is true mm-hmm. so I've taken this position and then undermined it and I think 
some of this stems from it, it, it was something you and Ferg were talking about a few moments ago about the audience I th- and, and why we're so serious. I, I think there's a couple of things there. I think we're frightened of our audience. And I get that from a stand-up perspective. You're always frightened of your audience because as much as you might be happy with your material and go, I know this material's funny because I've done it, you know, I've run the material in, I've done 10 nights of these jokes, I've figured out where the timing is, I know how to land it. If that audience don't buy into what you're doing, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how funny your material is or how good a presenter you are, it doesn't work if the crowd are disengaged. So I wonder if there's an element we're frightened of the audience because I don't think we really know who they are because most people are going into the supermarkets and buying, you know, the big branded stuff, which is entirely valid. Most people in wine aren't talking about that. So there's an inherent disconnect between I'm here to talk to you about decent Burgundy or Bordeaux or you know, good Argentine wines, but that start at 15 quid on the shelf. Mm. Most people that drink wine aren't that. So I wonder if there's a a fear response. I don't really know who this audience is, so I will rely on talking about all the stuff I know about wine that these people don't know. It will make me look really clever. I won't be challenged. I won't be caught out. There we are. Um, I don't know if that is the case. Uh, I'm always, you know, I, I always try and explain I, I don't know I'm just putting stuff together in my head so it doesn't mean it's I, right I kind of wonder something that I notice um and, and I see this all the time like we've had this degradation of perceived value of a lot of skills and one of mm. those is content creation or communication like actually being a good communicator whether we're in the era of social media YouTube and podcast or, or book writing being a good communicator is hard because mm. Not only do you have to have kind of like that, you know, that inner spirit of I can read the room and I, I know my material well enough that I can adapt. And, you know, I, I can actually myself, I can love what I'm talking about or I can love who I'm interviewing. I mean, I notice this in podcasts. Anyone who listens to my podcast can always tell when I have a personal relationship with the people that I'm interviewing because just the whole tone of it and everything mm-hmm. we know about each other is so very different. But because we're in sort of this grab a mic and a video and suddenly you're a YouTuber thing, there's this perception that everyone should have a natural comfort or skill with engagement and storytelling. And that's that's simply not true. I mean, I know personally, I'm an introvert. The, the things that I do with this microphone in front of me, you know, sitting here talking to people, this is jumping out of my normal everyday self to do it. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I do feel like that it's an undervalued or underrecognized skill that is honed over time. I, I wonder if you talk about sort of, you know, the lack of perception of value. That's something I feel very passionately about. There's a well-known story, isn't there? There was, um, a violin player, I believe with the, the New York symphony orchestra, a very, very high end orchestra where you would have to pay hundreds of dollars a ticket to go and see them. And this violin player pitched up in the, I, I think it was New York. So someone will listen to this and go, no, it was Chicago. But the, the, the moral of the story remains true. They pitched up and, and just played the violin in the subway. And yeah. kind of most people walked past. And the only person that stopped was a very young child who just innately appreciated the beauty of what this individual was doing. But it was only when it was advertised, a, a board was put up or somebody said, hang on, normally to see this play, you've got to pay $500. And everybody stopped. And I think in wine, to, to relate to what you're saying, most people drink wine for fun. And so I think most people don't necessarily realise how hard it is to work in wine to do it well. You know, the knowledge that you have to build, the experiences that you need, that comes at, at great cost in, you know, financially in terms of time. And so I think sometimes in wine, I know I, I, and I say this because I felt it personally. We sort of go, no, you should listen to me because I've done this for 20 years and I know what I'm talking about. But that, that lack of perception of value sometimes can push someone to go, well, I will just, I'll become even more serious and kind of almost closed off. Um, mm. But, mm. but I, I, I totally agree in that, you know, you, presenting and communicating isn't something everybody can do. It's very, very difficult and you constantly have to be, uh, innovating or, or, or at least self-assessing what you do every single yeah, time exactly. you do that piece you can did I do it well did it work what didn't work what can I change and again that, that well and did it and still work because you know mm-hmm. the things that used to work might not now I, I actually 
in the spirit of discussing our audiences, I do want to talk a little bit about the real wine side of things, um, which is so at Balfour, I noticed, Fergus, that you, as you say, your wines aren't cheap. And yet, as you just put it, but they are even on the, the cheaper side of some of the English sparkling wines. But it's not just the English sparkling wines. I notice that you have a full gamut. You've got canned sparkling, you've got ciders, you've got beers, and as a nod to Lee, you have a cider rosé. Um, how much mm. of this, if we're talking about knowing our audience in a communication space, and then we've got the knowing our audience in a production and positioning, you know, placement, how much experimentation is okay within a brand like Balfour where you, you know, you are established, there is a heritage, but we also have a young head winemaker who isn't the most self-serious, you know, about the world. Obviously you're very serious about your production. You know, do you look at the future of wine differently than maybe your dad did when you're like, yeah, we're going to try this and here's where I think it's going to work, but maybe it's going to fall flat. But what's important is we're actually going to experiment. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think you, you put it very well. I think I'm very lucky. And I, I say this a lot and I, and I, I really mean it. I'm incredibly lucky to have the job I do. And I'm still waiting for the bit where they realize that I'm probably not the right person for it. But um, we're, we're really lucky at Balfour because I'm actually very well supported. So we do a lot of, we do, we make 27 SKUs just in the wines. And then on top of that, we make uh, two beers, two ciders. And uh, we also make a non-alcoholic sparkling rosé and a non-alcoholic sparkling white. Um, so we make a lot of products. Um, and we're lucky because actually by doing all of these products, what we've been able to do is, is, is make um, product development and, and and I don't want to say innovation because I don't want to imply that you know I'm particularly innovative but you know that idea that we, we always have new wines coming out and we always have little parcels of wines that are that are, that are coming for release that are, might be interesting might be a bit different um, and and that we've got that as part of our heritage now it's part of our tradition is that we're always trying new things and I think that's a really nice way for a brand to sort of um, market itself. You know, yes, we've got Balfour Brut Rosé, which is a wine that was first made in 2004 and has been made every year since then. Uh, but we also have, you know, Pink Fizz, which is a, a, a sparkling rosé that I shoved in a can during lockdown mm. just because I thought it would be fun. Um, and, you know, it's it's. I think it's really important as as brands that you, you, you don't, you know... Not, None of these are, all of these things, not all of these things will work. Not all of them will come off and be massive commercial successes. But if you've not tried it, how do you know? Um, and, you know, and I think it's, I think it's really, and it's really nice because when people talk about Balfour, what I, what I like is when people talk about Balfour and they say, oh yeah, they, they, they've, they've tried this or they're quite, I want to be seen as a as a brand that 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 gives things a go and 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 has a punt. Um, and I, I guess the other side of that that's also really important is that if you have a, a history of testing, trialing, we want to call it innovating, go for it. Um, then it does give us the capacity to roll something out and then wind it up, right? You know that to say, well, we tried it. And did it work? You know, we thought it was great. Didn't play in Peoria. Wasn't right for the audience. Maybe it wasn't the right time. I mean, I've, I've been thinking recently about the number of people who rolled out either the canned wines or the tasting test tubes or the podcast, or any of the things that, you know, in like 2016, they're sitting there in lab like, yes, this is the way of the future. Not the right time. Doesn't work so well. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do think that element of making it a part of the perceived culture, it adds a level of resilience because I know so many wine brands who are like, man, we can't adapt because our audience has an expectation of us that is just written in stone. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's one of the wonderful things about English wine is, 
you know, we're we're such a nascent industry. We're so young, and it's it's really exciting because you there's there are no tr- real traditions laid down. There are very few laws. There are only two PDOs, well, three PDOs in England, and and you know that's that they're, they're pretty broad in their scope. So you know, there's no real appellation control yet, and and that's good because you know we're so bleeding young we still don't know what every grape variety that grows and which ones are really uh, are genuinely the best i mean obviously chardonnay pinot noir are great but you know we planted gamay i've got albarino coming um i've got putty meslier um, wow. and you know I've, there's 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 so much still to learn in 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 england from a viticultural point of view and I, I love it. It's 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 proper Wild West stuff. You know, we're putting stuff in can. You've got people doing Charmat. You've got, um, you know, people doing bag in box, but premium bag in box. You've got cardboard bottles, and you know, it's great because there are no preconceptions about English wine. You can you can basically do whatever the bloody hell you want as long as it's legal, mm. um, and that's that's great. From a that's how Lee feels about his his stand up too. Well, frankly, Lee's stand-up should be illegal, but anyway. Well, well yes, it, it, yes, it should. I mean, you can tell that, um, you know, Polly, you're such a, a wonderful and generous host, but I can <laughs> tell that you've never seen anything I've ever done because if, if you had seen me go, he doesn't know how to do stand-up at all. Uh, in, in fact, well, but there's this, this thing in English wine, right? In fact, it's not just English wine, but I, I'll relate it to English wine. Sort of, I don't know what it was. Five, six years ago, we went, do you know what the future of English wine is? It's Bacchus. Consumers, they'll absolutely love it because it's like Sauvignon Blanc and it tastes like it and it will do for England what, what Sauvignon Blanc did for New Zealand. Has it? Fuck. It hasn't. It, it, it's, not, it's, it, it's not worked. Now, I don't know if we've figured out why that is. I think price will be an issue, but we're seeing other things in English wine. So, you know, we're talking about innovation. How many, you know, people within the industry or on the periphery of the industry will see a piece of innovation? I can remember example... Uh, there's, there's Cabernet and Merlot growing in England, and England is far too cold for that, but it's growing under a polytunnel. And this Cabernet and Merlot was was grown and turned into quite a young, funky, juicy wine. You'd go, yeah, that's great. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. And I remember certain people going, oh, it won't work. Won't work. Yeah. Well, well, firstly, how do you know it won't work? I mean, you know, there's, there's a conversation to be had. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But we don't know it won't work until we try it and it doesn't. Why don't we try it? Why don't we give our audience, our consumers, the chance to decide if they like it or not, rather than kind of telling them what they'll like or dislike. Yeah. Yeah. Not to go off too much into the politics of wine, but this is something that always astonishes me. It's like literally everything we are consuming in every format we are consuming it right now when it comes to wine exists because someone was like, hey, I've got this wild idea or I'm going to, you know, suitcase clones or whatever it is that we're like, okay, well, we're going to have a go. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if it's like protecting our turf, uh, if it's fear that somehow will bring disrepute to the industry. I don't know what it is, but I, I've said many a times we are super duper risk averse. And now we actually have these structures in place that are making it harder and harder to to bust out and to try new things. Um I actually want to talk about something that I learned this year that you two as Englishmen probably knew. So um, I'm going to uh, tease my good friend Pauline Vicard a little bit in this podcast. I was with Pauline in Bordeaux and I've known Pauline for years and I was teasing her about something and she's French um, by birth. And it led into this whole discussion, something I was totally aware of, that the French and and very possibly the rest of Europe, they don't tease the way that Americans tease, you know, which is like that good natured, I'm not really saying anything mean, but I'm kind of ribbing you a little bit. (coughs) And I realized that, as you say, for years, my jokes with Pauline were falling flat because it's just not culturally a part of communication. How much is this um, an issue? Do you see this? Do you have to tone down how you present Lee or the comedy when you're talking to non-Americans or or non-Englishers, as it were? In in many ways, I suppose I should, because that humour thing is a really interesting thing. It's it's a really 
uh, interesting aspect of comedy culturally. So I, I have a friend who's Dutch, and the Dutch, is, if you like, you say most Europeans they, they don't do that that kind of ribbing, taking the piss comedy. Um, so you know, I, I would introduce Ferguson. Guy, this is my friend Fergus. He's a fucking idiot. And, and my Dutch friend would go, "Well, why are you friends with him then?" Like they just don't. <laughs> yeah. It just it, it just doesn't land. They don't see it. And also, the Dutch are really cool because they don't heckle. They just stare at you until you cry. <laughs> Which is what most of my audience is. Yeah. And then they refuse to pay. Um, in fairness, you know, they're a very switched on comedy audience when it comes to what I'm doing. They've clearly understood it clearly and understood it doesn't work. But I am, um, you know, I was very privileged because I, I teach WSET and, and various things. And I, I used to teach quite a lot of Michelin star venues in London. And when you're in London, you know, it's so cosmopolitan that you, you, you really have a diverse group of people. And I was teaching. To, in this group, there, there was uh, a French lady, there was a, a Pole, a German, a Swiss, there was someone from Venezuela, you know, the, the range of people I had in front of me. And I thought it's quite interesting, I'll just have to do it the way I do it. And obviously, when, you, when you're teaching WSET, it is a little bit more straight-laced, but, you know, there's room to do some of the sort mm. of patter that I do and the, and the storytelling and the anecdotes. And it was really interesting in that that room watching that play out because there were certain people who really kind of got what I was doing and others just, it just didn't, it wasn't that it was or was not funny. It was just that lack of understanding. I I, I don't know what this is. So what I've realized, and and I kind of figured this out more from the little bit of stand-up I've done rather than presenting about wine, you have to be confident in who you are, who your character is and what your message is and, and commit to it. Because otherwise you end up speaking in a voice that isn't naturally yours and any message you have got is, is completely lost. So, you know, sometimes it takes a There was a, little... a big marketing lesson right there for everyone listening and saying, why are we talking about this? Ah! <laughs> so, Lee, can you just repeat that for the people in the back? I can't remember what I said. No, you, you have to commit to, you, you have to commit to, you, you find your voice and you figure out what your message is. And this is, mm. this. I say, this mainly comes from my stand-up rather than mine, but I think it's true in, in any form of presentation or communication. Who are you? What is your message? Commit to it and deliver it. And, and deliver it on the understanding. And this is a really good lesson that stand-up teaches you. Even if you are good at comedy, which I've never professed to be, even if you are good at comedy, you get gigs where you die on stage and they don't work. And I, I, I said earlier, I you know, there, there's a, a routine that I have and I've run it in and I know it works because it, it's worked on the vast majority of audiences I've played this routine too. It doesn't guarantee it will work. I've done audiences where it just didn't land at all. But if I wasn't committed to my character and my message, it definitely wouldn't have worked. And I realised, find your character, keep it, find your message and absolutely commit to it regardless of the audience because then you actually figure out who your real audience is and then you can communicate your message. Because if you're communicating your message to the wrong audience, it's a waste of everybody's time, their time and your time. Yeah, I think that really that that nicely circles back to what Fergus said in the very beginning, which is are, maybe we're conservative because we don't really know who our audience is. I mean, as you're talking about that and I'm thinking about Pauline and the teasing, I'm thinking, well, we have global brands. Right. And if we don't have huge marketing teams that can, you know, geotarget our comms or translate them even culturally within the same language, which Nobody but big brands have that. You know, there's this, we become the Starbucks of communication, right? Because we're like, well, we can't afford risking, you know, we can't afford offending anybody and we don't really know how this is going to play in a particular market. So we're just going to go out with the technical details and with the education because that's the only thing that we sort of feel like is is comfortable to to cross borders and cross cultures. Um, and yet we all sit around and listen to Ryan Reynolds heckle <laughs> Hugh Jackman and think it's fabulous and be like, why can't we be more like that? Um, Do you know, I, I watched um, Ryan Reynolds, one of his first adverts for the aviation gin. And it was the advert where he, he sort of came out and he said, I've bought this gin and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. And the, the, the footage was wonderful and it was all, you know, wide angle and moodily shot. And he's, he's you know, he did this thing. So everybody that picks our berries, they do half an hour of meditation in the morning. I remember that. And then oh, they pick yes, the berries and then they, they whack the shit out of them. And I, I, I watched the advert and went, why can't wine do this? Now, you know, wine and a gin aren't the same beverage. I, I get that. There's, it's almost like everything we discuss 
through the medium of podcasts and social media is much more nuanced than the medium necessarily allows. But mm. what, why can't we do that? It, 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 just talking about those global brands, my favourite brand in terms of the message and the connection I believe it has with the audience is Casillero del Diablo. Because in every culture, there's a devil. Okay, it doesn't have to be that, mm. you know, the, 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 the Christian devil isn't the same as a, uh, maybe the Hindu devil, for example. But every every culture has that central character and they're all kind of, they're all, every time it's the antagonist. And, the, the, you know, you watch the advertising for this brand, certainly on the TV, it tells you nothing about the wine. It doesn't, what does it taste like? Or, or the, the, the grapes grow on the left side of the road. Nobody gives a fuck about that. Nobody. This wine comes from the cellar of the devil. Devil lives in there and we make wine in it. And what's happened is the consumer's been put, made the hero of the story. The consumer is at the centre of that Casserole del Diablo story. Mm-hmm. It's a story you can tell globally and you buy into I think it's brilliant. I mean, you know, it's it's marketing, isn't it? But it's I genuinely believe it's so well done and accessible. And that, people I know who aren't that into wine, that's one of the brands that they definitely know and generally view yeah. it quite positively. So now we just have to say to Fergus, so Fergus, how do we get, for instance, you know, the English sparkling wine brands, like from an insider's view, what is it going to take to get what I'm going to describe as premium wine brands? Because I think that's really where, you know, the rubber meets the road in this discussion is people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but God knows where people are always bitching about them on Twitter. The the everyday wine brands can do that, but it's really not okay for premium brands. So from an insider's perspective, Fergus, what's it going to take for premium brands to, to market like that? Um, money. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think, I think, I think, you know, marketing, marketing in English, one, there, there aren't many, aren't many brands out there yet that have real cash to spend on to spend on marketing you've got you've got to remember at the moment all our i mean all our costs are with with setting up we don't have you know centuries old vineyards and and sorry centuries old vineyards is, is, is an oxymoron but we don't have vineyards which are well established and we have we've we've had to pay to set up our vineyards we've had to pay to set up our our sellers and things like that and and all of this has costs and and obviously you know the more established wine regions they've they've obviously paid that money as well but it's a generational difference they probably paid it 20 30 years ago whereas now we're having to spend that money now so it's it's difficult i think i think money's going to be a big part of it i don't i think i think english wine still has it's got a, there, there are a lot of people with a lot of personality in english wine and i think i think you know They'll get there, and I don't. And I think the way we communicate as a, as an industry, on the whole, isn't isn't too bad. It's more interesting than most than most industries. Um, but I think you know, marketing spend in English wine needs to go up. Um, and and it pains me to say that because it means I'll get fewer pumps and presses and nice things like that. Not if not if you have good marketers. I can't well, really say too much true. about marketers because it's going to sound like I'm being self-promotional. But good marketing means you get more pumps. It means you get more of everything you need. This it's only bad true. marketing that costs money. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. But you need the money in the first place. And, 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 and having that sort of capital outlay is quite, it's quite interesting because – yeah, we're we're all we're all desperately trying to grow, and at the same time, part of that growth has to be growth in sales. Um, and to do that, you need you need to be marketing yourself. But and so it's 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 we're in a we're in an interesting phase where it's 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 all about money now. We need lots of money coming into the industry so that we can we can continue to grow it um, and and get it moving. But it seems to be going the right way. Everyone's everyone seems to be doing okay. So. And, and and so their first big cost-effective step would be to tone it down by coming on the Maker and the Merchant podcast, right? I mean, I mean there we go. I mean, that would completely ruin any brand's credibility, <laughs> um, but they are welcome. <laughs> All right. So, um, so with that very gentle transition. Um, 
the podcast and the brand. Um, so I did see a little tweet that Lee went out with about maybe someone might be developing a brand. I'm not certain if that has anything to do with the podcast. Sort of what are the next steps for the two of you fellas? All I'll say there before Fred gives you a more intellectual answer is I shouldn't be allowed Twitter when I've had more than one glass of wine. None of uh, us should leave. <laughs> no, not a, it's a very dangerous place. There, there should be there should be a button on Twitter that says, "Are you drunk?" Like you the sh- little flowchart. Have you had wine? Well, yes yeah. or no? Do you want to wait and send this tomorrow? They've developed vehicles, haven't they? That, that, like, that have a, they have a breathalyzer, breathalyzer. in before you can start the, 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 the before you can turn on the ignition and start the engine. You know, all devices need that. 100%. Oh, you want to go on Twitter? Breathe into this bag. Um, yeah. So the, the maker and the merchant started, as, as I'm sure you can tell, you know, Fergus and I are very good friends, although we've, we've not known each other for years and years. It, it, it feels like it. before I met Ferg, I wasn't grey, and before he met me, he had hair. And um, Fergus ultimately said, should we do a podcast or what should we call it? And Fergus came up with the name The Maker and the Merchant, which to me sounded very similar to The Master and Margarita, and I have a, a penchant for Russian literature, so I was in. And... Ultimately, every couple of weeks, will it's a good excuse for two friends to catch up because, you know, everybody's busy, we're no different. And sort of we've only really started to think about longer-term plans. I've suggested that we should have deep philosophical discussion uh, every episode. Fergus has just said we should just drink some wine and say it tastes nice. And I think that's as far as we've got, isn't And really, it, we're all here... We're all here for Fergus's poetry and your guitar playing. <laughs> oh, God, no one's here for my poetry. We, we will uh, be developing Poetry Corner, Fergus. That has been signed off officially by me. Uh, I, I, we, had, we had a vote, and our listener, we only have one listener. Our listener. <laughs> uh, they, they voted how, is, how is your mum? Is she all right? Yeah, she, she's really good, actually. She sends her love. Uh, she's wondering if, if you want to come over for tea sometime. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, I think it's it's very early doors for us, isn't it, Lee? So it's 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 just it's at the moment it's a bit it's it's good fun, and that's I think that's. Are you it. enjoying? Are you enjoying celebrity status as podcasters? <laughs> we only have one listener. <laughs> I was, I was. So I was, you know, I mean, we can all look. A good marketer can blame that on iOS tracking, like nobody's business. And to be fair, podcast listener numbers are very hard to come by. So you might have all of Belgium listening to you, but we just can't. We, have we can't get across the iOS apocalypse. Um, that was exciting. Uh. <laughs> I am um, when we when we launched the podcast. Uh, I was I was hosting an event in London in a, in a wine bar and I did, this is my first opportunity you know I knew the episode was good the first episode was going live in a few days after this tasting and I said look there's a lot of wine podcasts out there with lots of reasons to not listen to them and this will absolutely be no different and I think we stick to that <laughs> there's the, the the podcast that I, there's a podcast I particularly enjoy listening to which is actually about Fergus's favourite sport, uh, which is the sport of kings and queens, the sport of snooker. And oh. this, <clears throat> this this podcast, which is is kind of about snooker, but isn't really, it's two friends. And the first thing you pick up is these two people on this podcast are really good friends. And they, they're talking as if they're kind of in a bar. And the, the, the conversation is very accessible. It's not overly nerdy, but they will talk about, certain things where you have to have a bit of knowledge about the sport to understand it but then the majority of what they talk about you can listen casually and I think ultimately if anything steers the maker and the merchant it's kind of that idea that you know Fergus has tremendous knowledge about wine and winemaking and if we can tease some of that out it will be useful to some people who want to listen but otherwise we'll just talk about wine in such a way that hopefully listeners realize we're just two people who really love wine and actually we're no different from any other consumer of wine and it doesn't matter what kind of wines we drink or what kind of wines the listeners might drink we're talking about wine in in a way that is hopefully accessible i i, I worry about this you see this a lot don't you people can't go oh, i'm going to demystify wine and it is a very mysterious subject but there's crowds that i talk to who kind of go well actually we, we don't find it that impenetrable it's the sheer volume of knowledge that's difficult it, it's not that we can't access it we just don't really know where to start yeah so I think we, we, you know, we're not setting out to demystify wine and make it and open a door for everyone. We're just here talking about it for 
people who are interested and want to come and listen to it. I don't think we're sitting here going, oh, do you like come here and we will teach you all about it. That's there's loads of other people who do that and they they do it, you know, far more effectively than Fergus and I would be able to. It's two people talking about wine, really. Yeah, lots lots of thoughts gone into it. (laughs) Yeah, we 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 don't we're not we're not. Yeah, that that is it, isn't it? We just we're just. It's just nice. Do, do you know the thing? Um, <clears throat> sorry to to talk over you, Fergie. It's something I do regularly. For for you know, I, I don't want our one listener to to get Mate, bored by thing. talking about um, molecular sulfur. But the the thing that ultimately, I suppose, has steered my career is if I if I talk to a group of people, and at the end of it, that even one person in that group goes, "I didn't realise that wine was so joyous." I, I can see how much of a thrill it gives you and how much joy you derive from it. That's ultimately, uh, rather than communicating technical data or knowledge or anything like that, I'd, I'd like people to go, this stuff's really cool and fun, isn't it? Wow, I, I, I like cool and fun stuff. And I think that... I, I want to I jump in and tell a story from uh, an interview I did some months back. So I spoke with a, a young woman named Diva Giles. She's 26. Um, I always refer to this. I just love her a bit. She's 26. She runs an award-winning wine bar that is definitely on the premium side of things. Anyway, she was talking about how, and she's got in the wine bar, she's got young staff, mostly female, young being, you know, in in their 20s and early 30s. Um, And the audience is everyone from my children who are just at drinking age, you know, 20, 21, all the way through to 70-year-olds who've lived in the neighborhood forever. This is what she said about storytelling um, from her staff. What she expects of her staff is that she wants them, if someone asks about a wine or if, if the opportunity arises at the table, she wants her staff to tell the story of their experience with that wine. Not the wine tastes like this and it smells like this, but literally the, you know, the, the story that she told, and I would encourage anyone to go and listen to the interview. She um, tells a story about this one wine where she and her partner were in the UK. They couldn't afford it. They saw it on the menu, but they were like, absolutely, we must try it. And that, that's, you know, and she goes into much more detail than I just had, but that's the story that gets told every time someone asks about that particular wine. And I think that that's the thing that when we've got, two friends sitting around talking about wine. I was just having this conversation in light of some of what's going on in wine Twitter. You know what? I remember my first wines that I loved. They were not fancy wines, but I can to this day tell the whole story about why I chose them and what I loved about them. And I can do that for meaningful wines throughout my life. I can't begin to tell you what they taste like because that's not my skill set, but I can tell you why they were important and why I remember them. And those are friend conversations. Those aren't educational conversations. Isn't, isn't that uh, so I, yeah. vital? So, sorry, Polly. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no. Please, please talk all over me too. I do, I do it to everyone else. I was just going to say one last thing. And um, if Andrew McInnes is listening to this, he'll know that, that his wine gets a shout out. Um, I was doing some research on, um, on La Cardin, and there is a Vivino... Uh, it? review that says, this is the wine that made me fall in love with wine. And I think to myself, I don't know that I could ever as a marketer ask for a better single testimonial review piece of social proof. Because as you say about the devil or, uh, you know, about relevance to our lives, every person can understand what was just said has fuck all to do with mm-hmm. what's in the bottle. Mm-hmm. It, it's you know, firstly that thing talking about flavors, you know, most people, Oh, this tastes of raspberries. Does it like, and, and cause it's not a tangible thing, right? You can't present somebody with a physical item and go, when you taste this wine, this thing here in my hand, that's what's happening. You can't uh, taste a raspberry. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter that it tastes of raspberries. It's when you remember the great bottles of wine you've drunk, do you remember what they tasted like? I, I don't think you, occasionally there might be something that sticks and go, wow, this was so pu- pure blackberries or something. You don't remember that. You remember who you were with, what you were eating, where you were. It's all of those things. The most, the bottle that has had the biggest impact 
on my life. I couldn't tell you what it tasted like, but it's the bottle that led to me meeting my wife and my son is named after this bottle. That is, so, and you know, loads of people have that story. You look at most wine drinkers and, and the wines they drink, you know, they've had a shit week at work. It's Friday night. They just want to go home and have a glass of wine. They, oh, this taste of blackberries and raspberries and forgotten dreams and all that. They don't want yeah. that. I just, I, they, I'm going to enjoy drinking it. It doesn't matter what it tastes like. So how does that wine connect to them? Well, there's so many ways it could connect to them, and we're not going to figure them out. That's why it's so important as a brand, I think, to figure out what your message is so that if that's the thing that's going to connect to the consumer, they'll pick up your bottle, not the next one. But if they pick up the next one, they're not the consumer for you. It's fine. Fergus, is this just kind of heartbreaking for you to hear all this when you spend your days being like, I want to get my wines technically perfect. And, you know, as the winemaker, I care so much about all of the data that Polly and Lee are sitting here saying, yeah, it doesn't matter Friday night wine. No, no, because frustratingly, I buy into that. I, I entirely buy into that, that, that view. I mean, I... I, the wine has to get there though and so you know for me it's I, I want I want my wines to be interesting I want my wines to be to be on that table but I need to get it on that table so that someone can have that experience and 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 yeah I mean sadly I, I obviously read my Vivino reviews almost daily um, it's quite a depressing thing to do and I wouldn't recommend it if, as a winemaker <laughs> but you never know, read your own reviews I don't love- read the press. <laughs> I long for the day where someone says something like that, but you know what a fabulous thing to be to, to have your wine as as one of those one of those bottles. Um, but yeah, of course that's how people think of wine, and of, of course that is. And 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 from from a winemaker's view, you know you want your wine to be that bottle that people remember because something was happening because they had it with fish and chips sat on the seawall, and then you know it's it's that you want that whole experience, but. You know, you've got to make sure that your wine is 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 good enough to be able to to be the one that they've picked up. You know, and so it's 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 you've got to get you've got to get your cart to the race, and then and then and then and then it's up to up to everyone else on how they enjoy it. Um, and so yeah, from so I, I, that's how I justify spending hours looking at, as Lee put it, molecular SO two or. <laughs> Discussing the various pros and cons of I different think, I think yeah. Albert, I think Albert Camus comes into this, right? So firstly, you know, Ferg's away, squirrelling away, looking at molecular SO2, doing all this really technical stuff. But ultimately, one must imagine Fergus happy. We could say the same thing. I can't believe that consumers. we've brought in French existentialism. It's, it's the only form of existentialism. On the hour really. mark, even. I mean, how are we supposed to like wrap up after we have after we have Camus in the? What, what I've realised is is Camus comes out of his box very regularly, but when he does, he's almost impossible to put him back. He's the opposite of Schrodinger's uh, cat, right? It's impossible to put him back in his box. Uh, <laughs> but we must we so, must also imagine the consumer happy we sit here in wine and we go look at these big brands they're not great wines you know talking about the liquid itself and it's not you know we use the wset acronym blick and is it balanced and is it long it doesn't matter we we talk ourselves into such a hole getting concerned about why these brands sell more than you know something fergus makes for example or any other p- producer at a boutique level I stop worrying about that. We must imagine that the consumer is happy. They're happy drinking that wine. Why are they drinking it? And what can we learn from it? So, Fergus, I think what you need to do is you need to up your residual sugar levels and pick a bit later, mate, to be honest. We've figured it all out. <laughs> yeah. And, and if, you could put, if you could put a critter on the label, it would probably really help too. <laughs> yeah, um, the, next, the next step really is to just put a giant handprint on the label and, and, and then just really up the production level. And it's Saruman's wine. Um, so, so, okay, Fergus, I know we've taken a bunch of your time. You're actually there in Harvest right now. Give us a lowdown. How's Harvest this year? Uh, harvest very good. Uh, all coming in very very fast this year. We've we've had uh, we had a blinding year uh, right up to um, September, and then and then it just started to piss it down with rain. Um, but no, the quality is very high. Uh, sugars are, sugars are good. Acids are good. Um, I'm probably halfway through. I think we've done about two hundred fifty to three hundred tons. We've probably got another two hundred odd out there, maybe a bit more. 
Um, so yeah, really good. I'm very happy actually. I've met, I've got my first reds under the way. So Pinot Noir got crushed yesterday, or did I crush it on Saturday? Saturday. Um, yeah, looking good. Everyone's happy. I'm exhausted, but that's 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 good. That's a good sign. Um, yeah, fabulous. All all is well with the world. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sure we will hear more about it on your next podcast, Lee. How do we find you guys? You can find us on the socials where we're maker underscore merchant uh, on both socials or go to wherever it is you get your podcasts from and search for the maker and the merchant. And we're two episodes in more to go. Or you can email us if you have any thoughts, questions or want to give the podcast equivalent of a Vivino review, which Fergus will be reading. You can email us at the maker and the merchant. That's all the words. No ampersand. The maker and the merchant at gmail.com. Brilliant. You know what? Last thing that I'm going to say, and then I'll let both of you go. Um, Lee, especially, I feel like I've known you via social media for years and this podcast happened because i was in the uk at the wine gb tasting here's a dude in like the brightest shirt ever (laughs) um which is saying something at a wine event and i just happened to be like who's the dude in the bright shirt and i look down and i'm like holy shit it's lee (laughs) and here i am like a total friggin' fangirl oh my god lee I can't believe I get to meet you. And you're just like, who is this bimbo looking at me like some kind of groupie? Um, so, you know what? Wine Twitter, wine Instagram, Vivino, all these things that we can kind of teasingly deride and say that we shouldn't drunk tweet on that. I have so many wonderful people who I've met because of that. Fergus, on the day, I was able to meet you. I love that we have a community that spans, you know, at the time it was me and New Zealand that spans continents and that we're all trying to work out our problems together. Thank you so much for coming and spending an hour with me today. Oh, thanks for putting up with us. No, thank you. Anytime. Come back anytime. Love to. Go be well, fellas. wouldn't like that, but thank you. No, they really wouldn't. (laughs) And... That's a wrap. Thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Fergus and Lee for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.